Welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bite. I've got something brand new in the mail from Jackie B. She was on episode 23's show. This is episode 24. I'll be talking about lessons from a fiction book called Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal, a friend of mine in recovery, recommended that book, and there's some interesting pearls of wisdom in there. And then we'll be talking about current affairs. But first, this is right from uh, the book. What was that about three jewels? The three jewels of the Tao, compassion, moderation, and humility. Balthasar said that compassion leads to courage, moderation leads to generosity, and humility leads to leadership. That's Christopher Moore's Lamb, the Gospels According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal. The fictional humor, Lamb, was recommended to me by my friend Peter, so I'm reading it. Absurdist fiction is the genre it's described as, uh, and uh, here's what Goodreads has to say about Moore's book. Moore's novels typically involve conflicted, everyman characters suddenly struggling through supernatural or extraordinary circumstances, inheriting a humanism from his love of John Steinbeck, and a sense of the absurd from Kurt Vonnegut. Moore is a best-selling author with a major cult status. So, Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff, is narrated by the character Biff. He's the childhood friend of Joshua because Jesus wasn't called Jesus 2,000 years ago. His name was Joshua, don't you know? Biff is dissed. History would exclude him from chronicling the life of Jesus. I mean, Joshua, as the Gospelers, Mark, Luke, John, and Matthew got to do. It's a funny book, but I don't really like the humor. I smile when I read the funny bits, and I can picture my friend Peter laughing out loud. It is funny. I get it. It's not my kind of funny. I'm 230 pages in, and I, I wouldn't have gone this far if it hadn't have been recommended by a friend I respect. And here's the real thing. I know that there are kernels of truth in fiction that are always way more profound than the fact tyranny limits of journalism. Moore is a lapsed Catholic. He has an equal right to religious commentary as any of us. I'll serve more Lamb with Biff uh, in later in today's show, but let's look at the opening quote for reflection. So Buddhism, by the numbers, has three jewels, four noble truths, five precepts, and an eightfold path. Taoism isn't as numerical as AA or Buddhism, but they have something called the Tao Tzu Ching. And in there, there's something known as Sanbeo, if I'm saying that right, or the three qualities of compassion, frugality, and humility. Compassion, moderation, and humility, as Moore states it, these are good qualities to live by, good mottos for stewardship of any 12-step fellowship. The opposite of these jewels might be 
A, intolerance, B, binging and purging, and C, arrogance, something I know something about. All three of these things, maybe we all do. Or false humility, and I'll get into that a little while later. Sorry, AA World Service, but you're, what's a helpless trusted servant to do defense against the human rights wrongdoings might not get you a pass from being accountable. So we'll get more into that later. In my recovery, compassion, moderation, and humility are cornerstones for a life in balance, or the opposite of a life in addictive behavior. Contrarily, if I'm narcissistic, I proselytize my view and advance my agenda. When I'm intolerant of those whose views differ from mine, I'm malnourished in vitamin C, compassion. When I'm rigid or chaotic, or flipping from chaotic to rigid to chaotic again, I'm deficit in moderation or frugalness. Humility is another type of moderation or life in balance. Humility is like blood sugar levels. Ego-driven is too high. Self-contempt or lacking confidence, well, that's too low. Like blood sugar, being low in a state of false humility is just as unhealthy as a state of having egomania. Briefly, I can't help but think of the Toronto Intergroup, AA World Service, Ontario Human Rights Tribunal matter, how out of balance this seems to be. With an intergroup that defends its rights to govern groups or to pit a majority worldview against minority, where is the humility, tolerance, and moderation there? By defining AA as conditional or making obedience to any particular wording or creed a second requirement, well, this actually destroys the very AA that they say they are defending. It is no longer it anymore when you put rules and restrictions on groups and members. Is intergroup demonstrating leadership or arrogance when it claims the right and then defends the right to excommunicate member groups. We know that if the members of intergroup voted to burn down the hall that they meet in, this mission from God through the voice of group conscience couldn't be used as a defense for violating the law, now could it? It doesn't matter how large the majority was. Intergroup consensus isn't beyond the law, is it? Here's the reason why intergroup doesn't have an unconditional right to do as it wishes. The issue is over the right to serve and participate. Where do these rights come from? Group rights and decisions come from the members of the group and the members of the group only. The right to form a group and declare yourself an AA group is an inalienable right, God-given right, as some might prefer, what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder, in other words. Or going back to AA lore, we in the service structure are trusted servants. We do not govern. Intergroup can't take away rights because they didn't grant those rights. AA is designed with a no tyranny of the majority policy. 
because every group can run itself as it sees fit, only being asked to consider other groups or AA as a whole. And AA World Service, they stick to the position that we did nothing. We have no power to do anything. So we did nothing wrong. This is dysfunctional. Claiming impotence isn't necessarily a winning defense against a human rights violation. This self-proclaimed impotence is a form of false humility. If these three jewels of Taoism lead to courage, generosity, and leadership, where is AA World Service's leadership, or intergroups for that matter? Courage, generosity, leadership are not foreign to AA creed. What does the Responsibility Declaration say? In so many words, it says, anyway, anytime, I'm responsible, we're all responsible. We're going to remove barriers. A World Service has become a slave to inaction. And I'll come back to that later. But this just in, this is part one of our show. We're going to focus on the annual membership data. This is as of January 1st, 2016. Uh, the summer, Box 459 put out by GSO. Every year it takes inventory or... AA's pulse in terms of our uh, membership. While not all of us will be alive to see it, AA's 100th anniversary is less than 20 years away. What are we doing right? What ought we alter or improve to ensure we have a centennial? Here's AA's accounting of members as of the beginning of 2016. Worldwide, 2,090,000 members. That's up 2.4% year over year. In the U.S., 1.262 million. Over half our membership is from the U.S. That's down 1.7%. In Canada, we're down 5%, 85,500. Uh, we were over 100,000 at one point. Non-Canadian, non-U.S., uh, 750,850, that's plus 11.7%, and there are loners and others, 66 of us. Now, the year before, we saw an overall drop in AA population of 5%. Last year, it was the U.S. that limited the losses, and this year, American membership, well, it's uh, sagging uh, just a little bit, 1.7%. This time last year, Canadians were behaving the same as they were the year before. Two years ago, a 5% drop in fellowship. This year, a 4% decline in Canucks and AA. We'll keep an eye on that trend. Internationals have had dramatic fluctuations. Two years ago, they were down 13%. And this year, they're up almost 12%. So it's double-digit shifts one year over the other. For perspective, by AA's own accounting, our membership exceeded uh, 2 million for the first time in the early 1990s. We've been up and down, sometimes dropping below 2 million. We peaked at 2.2 million in 2002. Rebellion Dogs has sometimes compared AA membership to the larger recovery community. From drugfree.org, 
we heard in 2012 that survey data released today from the New York State Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services shows that 10% of all American adults age 18 and older consider themselves to be in recovery from drug or alcohol abuse problems. These nationally representative findings indicate that there are 23.5 million American adults who are overcoming an involvement with drugs or alcohol that they once considered to be problematic. Now, this survey of Americans in long-term recovery, it rose 15% from 20 million to 23.5 million from their previous uh, survey. Last year, Rebellion Dogs looked at demographic data from the the turn-of-the-century book, Bowling Alone, Collapse and Revival of American Community. We saw that AA's treading water in population numbers as head and shoulders above other organizations, ranging from religions losing adherence, professional associations not attracting their peers, or even the American Bowling Congress members and bowling leagues being way down from their peak. Information without context is easy to misjudge, but it's also hard to find exact apples to apples to compare AA to. If you buy the adage, if you're not growing, you're dying, AA's population dormancy is concerning. Will we be a viable, relevant society 19 years from now? There are many, too, who dismiss the population data as unreliable or having negligible predictive qualities. At the time of composing this blog podcast, it's June 2016, and some surveys show that in the U.S., Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton is neck and neck with Republican nominee Donald Trump And others say that because this data is from surveys of people who still use a landline phone, this might be an older population, more conservative, and it might not actually reflect the general population. What does this have to do with AA? Well, this idea of a shrinking AA, at least in traditional face-to-face meetings, uh, doesn't fly in the face of everyday observations. I was just listening to Vic L. from New York City and John S. from Kansas City. Uh, They were comparing notes on the AA Beyond Belief podcast. And both in New York and Kansas City, meetings are down in population. Here in Toronto, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there were dozens of meetings that drew hundreds of members both downtown and in the boroughs. These same groups that attracted hundreds then, today attract dozens, not hundreds. So like the bowling alleys and churches of years ago, AA, at least from a casual gaze, isn't as big in the U.S. and Canada as it once was. But like the pollsters of elections, maybe there are others who feel part of AA but aren't included in the survey. I know that I spend a lot more time listening to podcasts, reading memoirs, reading blogs written by AA members about addiction and recovery in AA life. How many others are spending more time each day sharing recovery online of the face-to-face environment where these surveys are being taken? It's just something to think about.
It's an interesting question as to how well the annual polling system captures the overall membership. It's one thing that the annual survey allows us to compare AA's internal numbers one year with those same numbers and that same process from the years before. The actual numbers might not be 100% accurate, but hopefully the trending up or the trending down is uh, an accurate depiction of what's going on. Here's another uh, quasi-means of measuring AA engagement. I don't know the numbers exactly, but the fall box 459 from GSO reported over 57,000 people attended our 80th birthday in Atlanta in 2015, and that is an all-time high for AA convention attendance. Back in 85, I attended my first uh, world convention. It was in Montreal. 45,000 were in attendance. Ten years later, 56,000 came to Seattle. Uh, in 95. The attendance dropped in 2000 in Minneapolis to 47,000, and they dropped more in Toronto to 44,000 in 2005. But then we climbed to 53,000 in San Antonio, 2010, and boom, 57,000, a record uh, just last year. So is convention attendance indicative of AA's overall size? Uh, I, I'm sure it's a clue, Going back to the annual numbers, what does the double-digit increase and in declines in the last two years mean regarding the non-U.S. and Canada members? I'm sure AA issues have their own impact in India, and totally different issues are going on in the U.K. and vice versa. Germany, Japan, Australia, Africa, they'd all have their own issues regarding attraction rather than promotion. But at least this year, we see that if more is better, international AA is carrying the load while Canada and the U.S. are declining in membership. And while AA is never on a membership drive, we want to meet a need. We want to eliminate barriers and build bridges. So, part two, our responsibility to accommodate building bridges and removing barriers. In District 10, Area 83, I currently work on the Accessibility Committee. Our job is to build bridges and remove barriers between access to AA and those who seek our help. The committee has changed branding from accessibility, one word, to special needs, to this made-up AAism of AA access ability. The language and the mandate changes to accommodate a dynamic demographic. Years ago, meeting lists didn't indicate if the meeting room and the facility were wheelchair accessible. The definition of accessible has altered. Today, it takes in the turning radius in wheelchair accessible washrooms, automatic doors, access to elevators, the argument, we've always done things this way, doesn't wash in a liberal, inclusive society. Floodgate arguments. If we accommodate this need, what happens when that happens and then that happens? Also, no place in a progressive society. Each case of a request for accommodation has to be treated based on its own merit. Sometimes change comes from membership needs. Sometimes it's societal influence. 
Who remembers ashtrays and smoke-filled AA rooms, or airplanes for that matter? Non-smoking sections started appearing. A few ahead-of-the-curve members started non-smoking AA meetings. Now AA is pretty much smoke-free in all of the meetings I go to. It wasn't because AA had a spiritual awakening. It's fair to say that, but that's not the way we've always done it, would have been the preferred inaction of many AA groups. We were forced to follow societal values and conform to the law. Sent free or sent conscious is the next phase. Some people have allergies to uh, perfumed hair and body products. A room with a few liberally applied aftershave or perfume wearers, this could be a barrier to AA for anyone with an allergy. Some AA groups are making announcements asking people to be considerate of this factor. Some facilities that we rent rooms from have or will be imposing scent-free guidelines on all of their tenants, including us, in the schools, places of worship, or community centers that we host our meetings in. If we mean what we say with the Responsibility Declaration, every conference, assembly, and roundup ought to be wheelchair uh, ramp friendly. A ramp on every stage or no stage at all. People with disabilities aren't asking for special treatment. They are entitled to equal treatment. If they can't get to a room or a microphone, then we aren't a fellowship of equals. All of the senses, sight, hearing, speech, smell, taste, have to be considered if AA is to keep pace with our pluralist society, vegan food options, American Sign Language interpreters, Braille literature, audiobooks, online or phone AA meetings. These are all ways we can ensure that whenever, wherever is our standard. We need literature in different languages, and we find more and more a demand to have AA expressed in a secular as well as a theistic language. Like the wheelchair ramps, this isn't special treatment, it's equal treatment. This can't happen in a frightened society that views every change or adjustment with suspicion, now can it? The Toronto hearing before the Human Rights Tribunal is just one more chapter in what pioneer Clarence S. articulated AA to be in a 1975 talk. AA started in riots and will continue in riots. And then our conflict becomes page eight news. Schopenhauer looked at truth as an embryonic force that must overcome two difficult hurdles, ridicule, then violent opposition before it reached universal acceptance. An informed group conscience demands more than popular opinion. It demands asking, are we informed? Are we right? More than just, what would we prefer? Picture two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. Is that democracy? No, that's tyranny of the majority. And it happened in Toronto Intergroup back in 2011. And it will continue to plague AA until we develop an attitude that tempers our will to preserve with a willingness to accommodate. We read from Bill's writings and we see 
that he saw AA as ever-changing, ever-adapting. When we resist change in AA, we destroy AA. AA has to breathe to survive. AA has to adapt to the changing times, not become a museum of the good old days. Because we don't feel death from our inaction immediately, it hits us when it's too late, and we've long since forgotten that we are the architects of our own misfortune. The opening quote at the top of the show talks about how compassion fosters courage. Courage isn't rationalizing and defending. In AA language, it's quite the opposite. We seek courage to change where needed, not merely defend the status quo. How does moderation lead to generosity? When I'm moderate, I don't see AA as a zero-sum game. It isn't, I can get what I want and you lose, or I lose and you get what you want. Because I only want what I need, I don't place demands on others. I can be generous in the wish that others will get what they need in and from AA also. It's never either or. AA is my way and your way. Equal, not the same. United, not uniformed. As for the relationship between humility and leadership, it's clear that if I'm in a state of self-loathing or egomania, who's going to follow me? No one, of course. I need to be right-sized to be worthy of leadership. Not all change is growth, but the right to be wrong is built in Maybe it's not out of kindness that we've been granted this allowance to be wrong, but maybe being wrong is a necessity for a thriving society. Part 3. More goodness from Lamb and Biff. Here's a telling story from uh, chapter 16 of uh, Lamb. We were 12 days into our journey, following... Balthasar's meticulously drawn map when we came to the wall. So, I said, what do you think of the wall? It's great, said Joshua. It's not that great, I said. There was a long line to get through the giant gate where scores of bureaucrats collected taxes from caravan masters as they passed through. The gatehouse alone were each as big as one of Herod's palaces. Soldiers rode horses atop of the wall, patrolling far into the distance. We were a good league back from the gate, and the line didn't seem to be moving. This is going to take all day, I said. Why would they build such a thing? If you can build a wall like this, then you ought to be able to raise an army large enough to defend against invaders. Lao Tzu built the wall, Joshua said. The old master who wrote the Tao? <laughs> I don't think so. What does the Tao value above all else? Uh, compassion and those other two jewel things? No, inaction. Contemplation, steadiness, conservatism. A wall is the defense of a country that values inaction. But a wall imprisons the people of the country as much as it protects them. That's why Balthasar had us go this way. He wanted me to see the error of the Tao. One can't be free without action. 
So he spent all that time teaching us the Tao so we could see that it was wrong. No, not wrong, not all of it. The compassion, humility, moderation of the Tao, these are the qualities of a righteous man, but not in action. These people, they're slaves to inaction. The Magus wasn't teaching us about action and work. It was action as in change. That's why we learn Confucius first. Everything is like the Torah, rules to follow. And Lao Tzu is even more conservative, saying that if you do nothing wrong, you can't break the rules. You have to let tradition fall sometimes, and you have to take action. You have to eat bacon. That's what Baldazar was trying to teach me. Uh, I've said it before, Josh, and you know I love bacon, but I don't think that it's enough for a Messiah to bring bacon. Change, Joshua said. A Messiah has to bring change. Change comes through action. Baldazar once told me there has never been a conservative hero. He was a wise old man. So how's the wall a metaphor? Our service structure is designed to protect us, but it's not designed as a barrier. GSO feigns pseudo-humility if it says, hey, we're the schleps at the bottom of the triangle. We can't tell intergroup what to do. But for me, real humility requires a personal relationship with reality. Being humble is a right-sized view of my limits and my possibilities. Humility isn't playing the innocent bystander, and neither is leadership. AA is growing more diverse. By our 100th anniversary, if we haven't messed it up before then, we'll be more than just a Judeo-Christian view of right living that our founders drew upon to articulate the AA way. The Tao means the way. In Lamb, the Tao is portrayed as promoting true humility, which fosters true leadership. In the AA General Service Conference Inventory Compendium, 2013 to 2015, we read there about leadership. Leadership isn't a bad word in AA. There must be some for AA to function effectively at all levels. We should encourage each other to lead and be willing to follow as well. We should not fear challenging authority. Leadership must listen to criticism. So this language, uh, this is what I'd like to hear from AA World Service in Toronto right now instead of, what can we do? We have no opinion. Leadership is not tyranny, but neither is leadership a resignation of helplessness. Yes, there is a service structure, but this inverted triangle is not a hierarchy of worth. We are a fellowship of equals. We are all responsible at every level of the triangle. The chapter 16 excerpt from Lamb warns us of the crime of inaction. Is AA World Service defending inaction as being good stewardship? Could it be that AA World Service has enslaved itself with inaction, as described in the book? One can't be free without action. 
AA liberty is nothing without AA responsibility, whenever, wherever. There's no freedom if we abdicate responsibility. All of us, members, groups, GSO, trustees, we all are responsible. What makes these essays in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions so enduring is they don't point the finger at other wrongdoers. We see our own flaws and our will out of control. We're humored by our will to guard against dangers when no danger exists. Maybe that's what's going on right now. Now I suggest is a time for us to work together and to see how everyone can get what they need. Now is not a time to point the finger at the faults of others. Our freedom always comes from admitting our own faults and imperfections and striving to do better. We don't take other people's inventory, and certainly no peace or freedom can come from such a backward application of AA. AA World Service, your tone of don't blame us, we didn't do anything, that's neither leadership nor servitude. Let's forget about who's to bless and who's to blame. AA makes mistakes. We're not perfect. We admit our mistakes. We correct them. What can be offered in terms of leadership? Is there more we can do that is solution-based and less based on self-justification? We've talked about the Tao, the Human Rights Code, and AA lore. A values and tenets and traditions aren't at odds with either the Dow or the Ontario Human Rights Code. People are watching what's going on in Toronto and they want us to work things out. No one wants change for change's sake, but let's not be afraid. Let's not destroy AA with the lethargy of inaction. I hope and trust that this solution can be mediated. Like our trials and tribulations of the past, we know that through surrender we find freedom. Through self-reflection, we find our capacity for love and service. I mean, that's just AA. And back to uh, AA population growth, in 2009, you know, there were zero atheist agnostic groups in Canada, and according to the World Directory, hosted by the New York City Agnostics, there's 25 meeting nights every week in uh, 15 different uh, towns and cities in Canada. And that's up from zero in 2009. This is a growing population for sure. There are also meetings now in Russia, Japan, England, France, Colombia, and Australia. And of course, agnostic atheist meetings in the U.S. are growing and bucking the otherwise sagging trend. Now, part four, dogma and theism, dogma and science. Dogma dogs are every step. I suppose I come across as an advocate for a cause, and maybe I am, but it's not the rights of secular AAs that I advocate above all else. It's the right to free thought and free expression. Theists aren't the only population prone to dogmatism. Even in our scientific community, questioning pet theories isn't always well received. I saw a TED Talk recently with a biologists that I would consider a free thinker. According to uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, he's the author of The Science Delusion, Freeing the Spirit of Inquiry. In the U.S., the same book is called Science Set Free, Ten Paths to New Discovery. And he says the delusion or dogma is in that 
We think we've already figured out reality. Here's what he has to say. The science delusion is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality in principle, leaving only the details to be filled in. This is a very widespread belief in our society. It's the kind of belief system of people who say, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. It's a belief system uh, which has now been spread to the entire world. But there's a conflict in the heart of science between science as a method of inquiry based on reason, evidence, hypothesis, uh, and collective investigation, and science as a belief system or a worldview. And unfortunately, the worldview aspect of science has come to inhibit and constrict the free inquiry, which is the very lifeblood of the scientific endeavor. Since the late 19th century, um, science has been conducted under the aspect of a belief system or worldview, which is essentially that of materialism, philosophical materialism. And these sciences are now wholly owned subsidiaries of the materialist worldview. I think that as we break out of it, uh, the sciences will be regenerated. What I do in my book, The Science Delusion, which is called Science Set Free in the United States, um, is take the ten dogmas or assumptions of science and turn them into questions, seeing how well they, turn, how well they stand up if you look at them scientifically. None of them stand up very well. Like their religious counterparts, some modern secularists practice their own tyranny from the pulpit of reason, dismissing, you know, concepts of consciousness or the purposefulness of nature as being woo-woo or superstitious. They're backwards ideas that uh, impede progress. I don't bring uh, this uh, Dr. Sheldrake case up because I have a man crush on him. I don't think that a creative possibility has the same merit as tested scientific theory. It's just that I don't think science ought to be in the resting on our laurels business. The list of widely held and completely mistaken scientific views throughout history is legion. Again, even science will serve us better if it remembers the three jewels of compassion, moderation, and humility. And these ought to be just as welcome when it comes to challenging scientific dogma. Part 5. An Interpretation for Non-Believers from Hazelton. Jackie B. of Recovery Works Theatre. She was on last episode show. Now, so is William Borchard, and I got to get him back on the show because I still have some unused material from my interview with him. But anyway, she asked me for my mailing address. I didn't ask why, I just gave it to her. And what did I get in the mail? I got this out-of-print pamphlet from Hazelton called AA, An Interpretation for the Non-Believer by Dr. John R. Weinberg. How great are friends in AA? Thanks, Jackie. So I did some research because I wanted to recommend this pamphlet to everybody. It looks like it's been mothballed and it's out of print. I did find and buy something else from Hazleton, The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
interpreted by the Hazleton Foundation, and I hoped it would include psychologist uh, John Weinberg. Sadly, this 1993 publication passes on the earlier 1975 contributions of Weinberg's secular view uh, about AA, which he directed both to the medical community and prospective 12-step members. Now here's something from Hazelton's interpretation, the 1993 version, that I did buy online. This is by Karen Elliott, former director of Hazelton Educational Materials, who's best known in our community by her pen name, which is Karen Casey. Uh, she wrote, Every Day a New Beginning, Worthy of Love, and she co-authored The Promise of a New Day. So here's what she says in this newer pamphlet's uh, introduction. Hazelton has intentionally selected several voices to share their interpretation of the steps because a guiding principle of the fellowship is that we should take what fits and leave the rest. In other words, no individual speaks for the group or organization as a whole. Each of us, in our search for spiritual, emotional, and mental health, must decide for ourselves how to apply the principles of the program in our lives. The application of the steps for one may differ significantly on occasion from an application of its meaningfulness to someone else. So that's the 1993 Hazelton Collection of Interpretations, which includes Mel B. and other AAs, uh, Ph.D. in Pastoral Theology, and Chemical Dependency uh, Treatment Professionals. But still, I was sorry there was nothing from Weinberg. Now, there was an especially poignant statement in the booklet Jackie sent me that I'm going to share with everyone. And, you know, it's a message for all of us, intergroup, GSO included, but day-to-day AAs. Now, Ernie Kurtz uh, referenced John Weinberg in Not God, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you read Ernie, you know or at least have been influenced by Weinberg. So here's a sample from uh, John R. Weinberg's AA and Interpretation for the Non-Believer. Contrary to what many professionals believe, the AA 12 steps are suggested, not mandatory. The only requirement is the desire to stop drinking. Individuals are free to interpret and practice the steps as they wish, if at all. However, since AA is basically a way of life rather than a social club, the 12 steps serve as a framework upon which most successful members build their new existence. Many of the reservations about AA from both professionals and new prospective members centers on the content of the steps. Therefore, each step we will briefly analyze from the author's viewpoint, which is secular and psychological, with the hope that other professionals may utilize this approach comfortably with their clients if it is acceptable to themselves. So he talks about all the steps, and here he says something interesting about step three and sort of wrapping up one, two, three. In simple terms, step three means doing what we should rather than doing what we want to do. While this approach may be highly desirable for all people, it's often a life or death matter for the alcoholic. There will be innumerable times during recovery when he or she will want to drink 
and only a strong commitment to what should be done, i.e. abstain regardless of circumstances, can prevent a relapse. To summarize the first three steps, then, the alcoholic accepts his problem, i.e., falling victim to an incurable disease which is severely impairing his functioning, believes there is a partial remedy, i.e., a recovery program which fosters sane living and decides to follow the program, i.e., commits himself to doing as he should. We now turn to the mental health aspect as found in the other nine steps of the program. So he talks about those steps. He uh, spends a paragraph or two on each of these subjects under typical criticisms of AA. AA is a substitute dependency. AA is too religious. AA is too rigid. AA members are fanatic, smug, outspoken, and otherwise obnoxious. AA is prejudiced against professionals. In all of these rebuttals to objections, uh, Dr. Weinberg makes sound counter-arguments with a compassionate understanding of how any uh, professional or prospective AA member might draw these conclusions in the first place. Under AA is prejudice against professionals, Weinberg articulates the plight of identity politics. In the mid-70s for sure, and maybe it's the same today, alcoholics often face condescension, moralizing, and righteous indignation from both loved ones and professionals. Now what it was about what Weinberg wrote in 1975 that got the greatest reaction from me was in this short discussion on why AAs or practicing alcoholics might feel fed up with the medical profession. And as you're reading this, maybe you can see the similarities as I did with how non-theists in AA today and the attitudes of some of the majority or what our spiritual appendix describes as our more religious members, as well as those in the service structure to which we've been asking for accommodation by means of a larger voice in AA literature, be it a, for atheists and agnostics, pamphlet or what have you. So check this out. This is from page 12 of this AA and Interpretation for Nonbelievers. Bigotry is almost invariably a two-way street. When some minority group is discriminated against, whether due to race, religion, ethnicity, age, or stigmatized illness, the group tends to become hostile in a biased fashion towards all those labeled oppressors. Alcoholics have not been accorded dignity, respect, and competent treatment by society as a whole, but professionals entrusted with their care bear a special burden of responsibility for this systemic maltreatment and non-treatment, overt and disguised rejection that historically has been the rule rather than the exception. Even though the climate appears to be gradually changing as professionals become enlightened, it may be a long time before an alcoholic can be reasonably confident that any given professional understands the illness, accepts its victims, and is competent to participate in the treatment. The booklet goes on to discuss why AA is effective, uh, with emphasis on the fellowship, uh, there's implications for professionals, and it talks about Al-Anon. 
but the section on bigotry really spoke to me. I read it several times to replace secularist humanist uh, with the alcoholic in the end, and replace a world service where professionals would be. It would really ring true for me. Atheists have not been accorded dignity, respect, and competent treatment by AA as a whole, but the General Service Conference, entrusted with their care, bears a special burden of responsibility for the systemic maltreatment or non-treatment, overt or disguised rejection, that historically has been the rule rather than the exception. So that seems to fit. I'm sometimes asked, why are atheists so angry or outspoken in AA, or why are they preoccupied with God talk? It's like asking, why are feminists or people with disabilities or people of color, why do they have a chip on their shoulder? Well, the answer is simple. It's a learned protective reaction to systemic discrimination, sometimes intentional, sometimes unconscious, but almost always ubiquitous for those with a secular worldview engaged in a 12-step discussion. A secular view of AA, or an atheist translation of the 12 steps, is no more a threat to AA as a whole than a Russian or Punjabi interpretation. So inaction isn't stewardship. Love and tolerance, or compassion, as Christopher Moore quotes from the Tao, this leads to courage. Only someone compelled by the love of others can have the courage to change because change is scary. Letting groups read what they want, write what they want, say what they want, that might seem scary, but are these floodgate worries warranted? As for our, but we've always done it this way, stonewalling of things like an atheist agnostic pamphlet or intergroups rigid God-only view of AA steps, to get all Dr. Phil on us, how's that working for you so far? Well, we're in court, defending our right to bigotry and standing idly by while fellows are being discriminated against. Thinking about that 100th birthday of AA and those members who will look back at the goings-on in 2016, they get to judge our actions, not us. Which side of history do you think we'll be on? Okay. Oh my God, I feel preachy. But <laughs> uh, let's just call it passionate. On a lighter note, I was delighted to see my friend Kevin. He and I and many others shared a stage together at the Toronto Young People's Conference, the talent stage. The theme of the conference was Stark Raving Sober. I was playing in a band called Skid Row with my son's mom, Pam, Kathy, who wrote the song called Rebellion Dogs, uh, which inspired the name of this radio show in our publishing company. John, Al, and Harvey were also in our band Skid Row. This isn't the Sebastian Back Skid Row, but this was, uh, I guess, before their time. We were performing in Jorgensen Hall of Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Kevin that night, I remember he did a version of Voodoo Child, that blew us all away, and he thought he choked. I mean, that's the artist's way, I guess. But Kevin is a noteworthy singer-songwriter, and his new project is The Cat Kings, K-A-T Kings, and his 2016 CD is called Swingin' in the Swamp. 
It's a great blend of R&B, rockabilly, swing, and rock and roll. Ah, let's see here. Let's go with Baby You Can't Drink. Perfect. Okay. Song 13, Baby You Can't Drink. I just want to say it sounds like I've been ragging on AA World Service, but give credit where credit's due. The October issue of Grapevine, AA's meeting in print, will focus on atheists and agnostics. That's going to happen in October. Also that month, I'll be giving a talk at the NADAC annual conference in Minneapolis. That's an international organization for treatment professionals. That's October 7th through 11th in Minneapolis. John McAndrew will be joining me again. He co-hosted the Sedona retreat with me back in 2015. So if you're not tired of us, and you're in the neighborhood, come on by. And then November, from the 11th to the 15th, Austin, Texas, 2016, We Agnostics, Atheists, and Freethinkers International AA Conference. I'll be there. I'm excited. Hope to see some of you there. So, for links to notes on our show, uh, Kevin CD, Swingin' in the Swamp, uh, or anything else to do with episode 24 of Rebellion Dogs Radio, visit rebelliondogspublishing.com for details. Now let's go out with the Cat Kings. Baby, you can't drink. Tell me.
rebellious. Dogs rebellious. Dogs rebellious. Visit us at rebelliondogspublishing.com.